This is exactly right. Favorite murder. That's Georgia Hartstark. That's Karen Kilgariff. And we're just here to tell you two relatively horrible things, and then we're gonna go. We're gonna get out of your hair. <laughs> we're gonna drop in, gonna drop some terrible news on you. Quick seek, couple quick seeks, secrets. I have my hand secrets. Up, hand up to my <laughs> mouth right now. She's whispering into the microphone, and then we're gonna just like later days. And then we'll it. just be like Irish goodbye right out of this podcast. Yeah. Going to moonwalk out of the scene. Georgia, is your life different now that season four of Succession has begun? Yes. It's just, it's a place I want to live now, my life. For real. It's a a beautiful, cozy place. I, I again, haven't watched the new episode, so don't tell me what happened. Because Vince was at WrestleMania all weekend, so I couldn't watch it. Yeah. So don't tell me. I'll tell you nothing. But I love it. Except that exact, it's weird that you haven't seen it because that was the feeling I had watching the second episode was like, it's just the quality of a show like that. It makes you want to be there and live there. And when the show Mm -hmm. ends after 53 minutes or whatever it is, you Mm -hmm. don't, you just are like upset. And it's the best kind of TV watching. The Disgusting Brothers is just absolutely the best <laughs> writing I've I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> when he described her purse as a, um, it was so big you could slide it across uh, the floor during a bank robbery. <laughs> it's just like yes, that's that's it right there. Mm, I love it. What so else good. are you watching? So good. Well, I watched Succession. Mm-hmm. with my friend. And then I was like, have you ever watched Peep Show? Because it's by the same <gasps> guy. I love to reveal the Peep Show Is connection. It? Yeah, it's Jesse Armstrong. Oh my God. Peep Show's one of the best TV shows that have ever has ever happened. It's so goddamn funny and one perfectly written and executed. Mm-hmm. And I just love that like, look where he started. I don't even know if that's where he started starting. Yeah. But- so crazy. The first work I ever knew of his. So if you haven't seen Peep Show, and I'm sure we've talked about it before, but... Yes, definitely. It's available to rent or buy on Prime, I believe. Is it? Cool. Okay. Because we used to have to watch YouTube. Oh, yeah. And it also was on, I think it was on Hulu for a while, but then Mm. they took it off and said, you will pay. Yeah. And you should. Uh, I've had to... I've had this issue with shows lately because I'm doing this... I'm doing this brain thing this brain magnet treatment where it's called TMS and you sit and have these magnets tap, 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 tap on your brain. It's supposed to stimulate um, neurotransmitters and bring and make you less depressed. But you can, and you can watch TV. You don't have to do anything. So they're like, you can watch TV during it, but don't watch anything depressing. So I, I've realized that all I want to watch it's depressing shit. Like I can't, I started watching like Emily in Paris and <laughs> the amount of eye rolling I did was like detrimental <laughs> to my health, I feel like. So I couldn't watch that. I tried like Grace and Frankie. I, there's nothing I want to watch that isn't depressing. Uh, here's the thing. There's more out there than just those two examples and we got to <laughs> find some for you. Do truly like season one of Arrested Development is such a standby. I've watched it. 10 times. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. <laughs> For sure. 
but but something along those lines. They only have Netflix and Hulu. That's the other thing. Is the place I go to. You can oh. only watch on Netflix and Hulu. Oh. So mm. I watched Somebody Feed Phil is a joy. I like that. But Great. I've seen them all now. Uh, and I just don't know what else to watch. I started watching this thing about like um, LSD uh, treatment in the 60s and how it came about. And I was like, this is great. And then it started getting into like Nixon and the presidency <laughs> and how fucked up it is. And I'm like, oh, I can't fucking watch this. This is terrible. I wonder if people listening should suggest to Georgia things that are not depressing, but still, but worth watching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's your challenge. Sorry to all you Emily and Paris heads, but wow. <laughs> wow. Well, wow. I feel like Emily in Paris was only supposed to do one thing, which is Emily goes to Paris. There's no levels. There's no... Yes. You're not going to find anything there. No. There's like a lot of bright colors and a lot of like flashy things happening all the time. But that's about it. Yeah. A lot of high heels, a lot of expensive purses. You know what I'm realizing is that like a lot of people's definition of what's depressing are different. And it's not... That's true we're very inverted in that way where like what others might seem to think are horrifying are things that actually yeah. bring us great comfort. Well, I think that's this, our podcast listeners are on the, we're all the same right. genre. So then, so then it's like Emily in Paris is our horrifying true crime to that's others, right. to the outside world. Violent and depressing as <laughs> named it. <laughs> Violent and depressing. Yeah, that's all. It's a real challenge these days. It's tough. I actually been, um, I wanted to recommend, and I think I started listening to this podcast because other people recommended it to us. Mm -hmm. And I've heard it, I've heard about it a bunch from our listeners, but I finally started listening. It's a podcast called Maintenance Phase. Oh, yeah. Have you listened to it? No, but I've heard everyone's suggesting it. It's incredibly great and well done. And they're both so smart. It's Michael Hobbs and Aubrey Gordon are the hosts. Mm -hmm. And they basically just debunk health fads and wellness scams and all that kind of, you know, it basically fat phobia and things that they just kind of analyze and very, Mm -hmm. just almost like scientifically break things down for each other and obviously the listener. And it is so addictive to listen to smart people take things apart piece by piece in that Mm -hmm. way. I was just listening to, they have done a couple episodes on different things happening over at Goop. And it's <laughs> amazing. And because they're not, they they love Gwyneth Paltrow herself. Yes. And it's not a hate fest. They're incredibly fair, like incredibly yeah. fair. But then they talk about these things where it's like, this is a whole genre that's happening in our world that's wildly out of control and un, kind of like unwatched by anyone. It's just like if yeah. someone comes out and tells you that the celery juice diet is the best thing for you, you're going to be hard-pressed to find <laughs> like the reasons why you're even seeing this in the first place. Remember when the celery diet was yes. like all that anyone was talking about? Yes, because, well, first of all, you just did the best pun that you you just slipped right over. You'd be hard pressed to find something, oh. something about the celery. Wow. Just, that was. I just wanted to point that out. It was excellent. <laughs> sure. Okay. But when our book came out, is when this like mm. number one best selling celery juice book came out. <laughs> That's right. So we were like, we were like neck and neck the, uh, on the charts with the fucking <laughs> celery juice diet book. So similar. And it was just so. It was like almost. 
It was perfect. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like That's there's right. nothing I would want to compete with more than a celery cheese diet book in my For life. For real. It's so true. But I mean, yeah, <laughs> if you're looking at, truly, I would just, uh, if that any of that sounds interesting to you, go look at the different topics that they have covered. It's just such a great way. They've gotten me okay. to so many appointments in these past two weeks, walking nice. the dog, like yeah. just putting it in and just being like, ah, oh, this the comforting sounds of two smart people breaking shit down. Amazing. Maintenance phase. I'm into it. Yeah. Oh, you know what else I tried? <laughs> A fucking Vanderpump rules, man. Oh, no, that's depressing and violent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. My amazing hairdresser, Caroline, just talks about it all the time. And finally, she convinced me there was some scandal. So I put it on and it, it was so depressing. And it was like, the jerky camera work, so I thought I was going to have a seizure too, you know? <laughs> the, the thing I think, I think people who really enjoy and get into reality TV that's like mm -hmm. on that kind of cringe factor, which mm -hmm. most of it is, don't mm -hmm. have the level of like hypersensitive mirror neurons that you and I have. Because mm -hmm. oh, I yeah. truly start watching and it's like, Obviously, these are some of the most beautiful people in Los Angeles working at a fancy restaurant, interacting mm -hmm. with DJs and celebrities. <laughs> it's like everyone's <laughs> dream. And it fills me with a dread that I yeah. cannot, cannot explain. Me too. And I immediately like get bored, but I feel like I'm suffocating where it's like, if I had to be with these people all the time, I would go and say, <gasps> yeah. Or if I had to be one of these people, like yes. what if my life was like that? And suddenly I start spiraling about, and like my early twenties in LA wasn't that dissimilar, like going to clubs and going out and trying to date. And it's just like, I can't, I can't with this. Right. It's yeah. like going backwards in time. Yeah. And it's like, they're saying, this is the world. This is all that matters. And it's like, no, I've worked very, hard to be in a world that has nothing to do with that. Yeah. It actually doesn't. But no judgments to the people who I know, pretty much everyone I know absolutely yeah. adores it, talks about it, yes. enjoys it. Very smart, smart people who are very cool, really enjoy it. I just couldn't, I couldn't find that like, that little tug that made me want to watch more. Can I actually counter everything I just said only to say, I mm -hmm. found... One time, I binged what felt like 48 hours of the Kardashians. Mm -hmm. You might want to give that a try because okay. it's like a, a low hum and that's all that's happening. Is it sisters too, where you kind of identify yes. with a sister connection? Yes, but none of yeah. them, even when they're fighting, a lot of them, they don't have like loud reactions. They don't yeah. have big reactions. It's like, Kim, there are people that are starving. <laughs> you know, it's all very kind of monotone one level. So so nothing's- It's like ASMR. Yeah, it's not jarring. It's yeah. not, you don't clench up for anybody. Okay. They're all kind of doing great. And then okay. lightly fighting over salad. It's really, it can be incredibly soothing as opposed to like, Lightly. you know, somebody just found out you were fucking their boyfriend or something. Okay. Fighting over salad. That's coming to you this fall. I mean, I wonder if that is on either of the channels that you're talking about for- I don't think so, but I'll watch it anyways. You know, <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> I have a, a listener letter 
about one of the things I talked about recently. So in episode 372, I covered the disappearance of the young girl, Anthonette Cayadito. Mm-hmm. So I got an email about that. It starts, I just want to write in real quick because in episode 372, you guys talked about the server in the restaurant that didn't know that Anthonette Cayadito was asking for help. I thought it might make you feel better to know that servers and employees of the massive international company I work for have to complete a how to spot human trafficking and what to do course. Mm. Uh, she writes, then she says, we're also watching and judging everyone that comes in at all because people are scum. After many years of serving, I just think good people eat at home. <laughs> Anyways, on the off chance this gets read, tell anyone that works in the with the public not to be afraid to make a scene if you think someone is unsafe. The Blue Campaign website has lots of good information on spotting it. Wow. And that's from Marina. It says, stay fresh cheese bags, Marina. <laughs> Marina, thank you. That's great to hear. It's very comforting. I wasn't trying to in any way blame that poor server who was just in a bad situation, but that's great. I mean, it does feel like that kind of awareness is is growing. And yes, absolutely. Wonderful news. Okay, let's do exactly right highlights and then we'll get into it. In our network highlights, the fourth episode of Tenfold More Wicked's eighth season... The Morphine Murderess is underway. It's only six episodes in total, so it's an easy binge and highly recommended. And speaking of highly recommended, Kate Winkler-Dawson has a new audio book out. It's called The Ghost Club. It is out now. So listen to this description. I got so excited when I read this description. For more than a century, some of the world's most important thinkers and leaders, men like Arthur Conan Doyle and William Butler Yeats, gathered once a month and discussed the supernatural at the Ghost Club in London. In the early 1900s, the club's chairman was Harry Price, the world's most well-known ghost hunter. He and other members like Harry Houdini sought to debunk the charlatans who preyed upon vulnerable people with fake seances, tarot readings, and spiritual encounters. So Kate Winkler Dawson's The Ghost Club is available now, and she is the audiobook narrator. So you're going to want to listen to that one. She's great. And then Bridger's guest on I Said No Gifts this week is none other than Haley Joe Osment from The Sixth Sense, of course. He's just incredible. And Aaron and Aaron this week will provide all the information you might need to know about lupus Ooh. on this podcast, We'll Kill You. And also, you might want to go take a look at their merch in the MFM store. It's designed by Abigail E. Penner, who I believe has designed merch for us too. Mm-hmm. She's so talented. She's great. That's awesome. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, made-in cookware. Made-in was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made-in. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made-in products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. 
What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill. If you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom, it's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. All right. So I go first this week. So you go first this week. Okay. Hey man, you know, I love an old cold case, right? Absolutely. An old mysterious disappearance, cold case. Well, this is the mystifying disappearance of the so-called real-life Little Red Riding Hood, Paula Jean Weldon. Oh. So the sources I used in today's episode are several articles from the Bennington Banner, including one by Rebecca Robinson, one by Helen Stock, and another by Marie Bailey, a Bear Montpelier Times article by James Robert Saunders, and a Charlie Project entry by Megan Good. And the rest can be found in our show notes. So it's December 1st, and we're in 1946 in Bennington, Vermont. Our story centers around Bennington College, which is a small liberal arts school that's known for being progressive and artsy, obviously. Mm -hmm. Currently, it's open to all genders, but in 1946, it was an all-women's school. And Paula Jean Weldon was finishing up a double shift in the dining hall where she works. She's an 18-year-old sophomore from Connecticut who lately has been thinking about switching her major from art to botany. Mm. She's a young, I know, cool, yeah. huh? She's a young and vibrant person with lots of interests. She's physically active. She's an experienced hiker. And today, even though it's early winter in New England, she really wants to go on a hike. She asks a few friends if they're available to join her, but everyone's busy studying, so she decides to go alone. Paula says a quick goodbye to her roommate, um, but doesn't exactly say where she's headed. She just says she's headed out on a, quote, long walk. Elizabeth knows that Paula is a spontaneous but responsible person, and reportedly just three weeks before, the two roommates went camping together. It had been Paula's idea, and they ended up spending a miserable night in a tent in the rain. But it does show us that the roommate Elizabeth 
that Paula can handle herself just fine in, you know, con- in whatever condition she ends up in. Outdoors. Outdoorsy. Which yeah. I think I'm quite the opposite of that. <laughs> I think if I told anyone I was going for a hike, they'd be like, what, are you okay? Did you hit your head? We'd be like, take this apple tag, please. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Elizabeth doesn't think much of it when Paula heads out. So Paula's wearing a distinctive red parka with a fur-lined hood and blue jeans. She has lightweight white sneakers on, which is fine for now because it's a relatively warm day. There's no snow on the ground. But she's leaving for her walk a little after 2.30 p.m. And it's winter in Vermont, which means that the sun will set around 4.15. That means it's going to get much colder very soon. And they're calling for snow that night. So she walks off campus toward a gas station with a gravel pit nearby. And the gas station owner, Danny Fager, remembers watching a young woman matching Paula's description running around inside the gravel pit. Mm. He clocks this behavior as strange, but doesn't think much of it. And from there, Paula heads to what seems like it might be her destination, a nearby hike known as the Long Trail. This trail is 273 miles in total and covers the entire length of Vermont from Massachusetts to Canada. Hmm. Paula probably just wants to hike, obviously, a small portion of it, but she has to hitchhike to get to the trailhead for it. And it seems like hitchhiking, you know, was pretty standard for the area and time, so it was no big deal. But it is beginning to seem like more more than a casual walk, which she had told her roommate about, you know? Right. A man named Lewis Knapp picks Paula up on Route 67A outside the college entrance around 2.45. She states that she wants to be taken to the Long Trail. He says he can take her as far as his house on Route 9, which is about three miles away from her destination. They don't talk throughout the ride, and she just says thank you when she leaves. Around 4 p.m., a young man named Ernie Whitman is walking with some friends out in an area called Bickford Hollow, which is not far from the Long Trail, and he sees this young woman in a red parka walking towards him. He's surprised that she's so underdressed for a hike given the late hour, but when she asks him about the Long Trail, Ernie points her in the right direction near Glastonbury Mountain. Um, There are a few unconfirmed sightings of a woman on the trail after this encounter, including an elderly couple who report walking behind a young woman on a trail. But what is confirmed is that Paula Weldon is last seen heading into the mountains as the sun is setting and she is never seen or heard from again. So when Paula doesn't come back to her dorm room that evening, her roommate Elizabeth just thinks she's like staying late at the library or something. And by the time she's settling in for bed, she becomes very nervous. It's obviously not like Paula to not come home. And she decides to wait until the next morning to alert college authorities about her missing roommate. But when she does, the college is luckily immediately responsive. They check the logbook for students who leave campus. Paula neither signed out or signed back in, but students only sign out and in when they're planning on returning after the 11 p.m. curfew. So they call Paula's parents to see if she might have gone home for a visit without telling anyone. And Paula's parents say, no, she she didn't come home and they understandably begin to freak out. The Weldons are a wealthy and well-to-do family and her father, William, is a somewhat famous designer of kitchen utensils and cocktail shakers. Hmm. He has lots of resources to help in the search So he heads up to Bennington College as soon as he can. Paula's mother reportedly is confined to her bed after she passes out when she hears the news of her missing daughter. So this is like totally out of character and something is obviously immediately wrong. And just so horrifying, just like the 
being in that particular situation, parents being called like, is she there? I know. That's like the worst question you have to be asked is, have you heard from? Yeah. Terrible and terrifying. Um, on December 2nd, the day after Paula's disappearance, Bennington College shuts down. Everyone who's able volunteers to help with a massive search. Other colleges in the area also cancel classes so students can help look for Paula. So it is a mm-hmm. big deal. Yeah. The search party starts by visiting various locations that friends have heard Paula wanted to visit. They completely excavate the gravel pit where the man said he saw, you know, someone matching her description. And soon, Lewis, the man who drove her towards the trailhead, and Ernie, the man who talked to her on the trail, come forward to report their interactions with Paula. This is when the long trail becomes the center of the search and the trees are dense, lots of stream crossings and rocks to navigate. But by all accounts, this initial volunteer search is slow and thorough. At the same time as the trail is being combed, a local taxi driver reports having taken a young woman who vaguely matched Paula's description to a bus station. And this information immediately expands the search area. Now, in addition to the Wooded Mountain area, investigators are looking into shops and stations along the bus routes. And possibilities of where Paula might have gone expand as far north as Canada and as far south as South Carolina. Hmm. And it's clear that this search is starting to need more manpower and expertise in order to be effective. But the state of Vermont has no state police force at this time. All the state's law enforcement is county-based and local sheriffs run the show. Crime rates are so low that many Vermonters believe a state police force isn't necessary. Remember, this is 1946, so they, you know, it's just like small towns. And they think it would be a waste of money, but that means there's no agency in charge of the search effort for Paula. So things quickly become disorganized and uncoordinated. Paula's dad in particular becomes so frustrated that he calls in some favors with both the New York and Connecticut state police who do their best to help in the search. And the FBI is also brought in. Now there's a reward of $5,000 for any information regarding Paula's whereabouts, which in today's money, you want to give it a shot? $5,000 in the late 40s, you said, is in today's money, $80,000. 81538. Yes. Holy shit. Do I do I get to get into the cash uh the ca- glass <laughs> cash grab closet? You do. What is that thing called? Cash grab? <laughs> I don't know. I don't The cash grab. Money booth. Money booth. The money booth. Thank you Alejandra. <laughs> the money booth. Money booth. Uh, okay. That that was the that felt so satisfying that it was like I was in an emotional money booth when you said 81. That was you grab that $81,000 right out of the air, for sure. So basically, there are no resources yes. that are centralized enough to even all these searches that all these schools are doing mm-hmm. and individuals are doing, there's no centralized processing of the information they may or may not be getting. Exactly. So her rich father has to come in yeah. and basically set something up himself. Right. So that's a night, nightmare upon a nightmare. Totally. So days pass and the search effort is hampered by stops and starts. A tip comes from a waitress in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is three and a half hours away from Bennington. She reports having served a young woman matching Paula's description on the night of her disappearance. The waitress says this young woman was behaving strangely and seemed agitated. 
This tip is so credible that Paula's father personally investigates, leaving Beddington for 36 hours without telling anyone where he went, but nothing comes of it. And I, I just wonder what the phenomenon is of people thinking they have spotted a missing person in states over, like when there's an Amber Alert. I think people are just so desperate to find answers that they they imagine something happened that like didn't. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's malice, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Oh, no, no, but... I do also think, like like you just said, it was so credible mm-hmm. that like people went. So that there must have been some information that that, that waitress had that made them believe yeah. it could have been her. Definitely. As the investigation into her disappearance deepens, it becomes clear that Paula was not quite so happy-go-lucky as she might have seemed from the outside. Just a few weeks before her disappearance, she'd refused to go home for Thanksgiving break, choosing to stay at the college instead. Mm. And according to her roommate, Paula and her father had a recent falling out. So Paula had seemed somewhat depressed recently. Um, She was the oldest of four daughters, and Paula seemed to think her parents preferred her younger siblings. Um, And this caused a major conflict within her family. And people started to speculate that maybe Paula has run away or taken her own life to escape the feeling of not being loved by her family. So that's probably like another reason her dad is like freaking out and so desperate is there had been a falling out, you know? Right. Yeah. The worst feeling, I'm sure. Also that it is slightly indicative, and and you might get to this later, Mm -hmm. but there is that kind of thing where if Paula had any kind of mental... right health issues at all. That sounds a little bit, not that that isn't completely possible and it happens to people a lot, Mm -hmm. that kind of preferential treatment. Mm -hmm. It also could have just been straight up paranoia. Totally. And that kind of like victim stance that people sometimes get with certain mental health issues. So it is that kind of thing of like, you know, my own family doesn't love me. Because thinking about staying home for Thanksgiving is a big break, I think. I think the mental health issue of being 18 years old an 18-year-old girl yes. <laughs> is yes. a pretty big deal, you know? Yeah. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So by December 16th, just over two weeks after Paula vanishes, her father packs up her belongings and takes them back with him to Connecticut. He lashes out at the state of Vermont in the press for not having a state police force to provide an organized and united search effort. And he has every right to be angry. There's been so little oversight that no records have been kept for the first 10 days of the investigation. Oh, not a fucking record. And presumably the record keeping only started when the out-of-state law enforcement got involved. That's ridiculous. Yeah. All of this negative press creates pressure on the Vermont state legislature and ultimately leads to the creation of the Vermont State Police just seven months later. Wow. So this story is the reason the Vermont State Police ever came to be. Wow. Yeah. So this brings us to some theories about what might have happened to Paula it's important to reiterate that no trace of her has ever been found, no bones or no clothing, scraps in the snow, nothing like that, no personal items. Despite some of those alleged sightings of Paula in faraway places during the first few weeks of the search, all of them are looked into and none of them seem to be her. And given the timeline of her leaving campus and being seen by Lewis, who gave her a ride, and Ernie, who talked to her on the trail and other hikers, investigators have every reason to believe that she made it to the long trail that day in December, 1946. So there are three main theories. She might've gotten lost in the woods and died of exposure, which seems, I think, the most likely to me. 
mm-hmm. or she might have been attacked by a wild animal. In these two possibilities, her remains just got lost in the thick woods around the long trail and were buried in the snow. Hmm. But you'd think that when everything thawed the next spring, some scrap of something would have been found, especially if there were a lot of people paying attention to that, to her disappearance, you know? I always think about, though, like wolf lairs or bear caves yeah. types of things where it's like, I don't know if things are left out if it's wintertime. Right. When they might be brought back to a, like a safe, warm place because mm-hmm. everybody, all animals are kind of starving in wintertime and either hibernating yeah. or like just getting by. So they, I don't know. This could be. Or maybe she, you know, was lost and cold and found a cave and hid in it. And so there's no like animal dragging her back to their cave. So there's nothing like no, nothing left behind. So she's already hidden. Yeah. Right. Investigators get what they think is a lead in 1955 when a lumberjack named Fred Gadette tells a friend that he knows what happened to Paula. He lived in the area where Paula disappeared. And that December day in 1946, he had reportedly gotten into a fight with his girlfriend and stormed off. And Fred tells his friend that he followed Paula through the woods. He even claims he knows where her body is buried. But when he's brought in for questioning due to these awful confessions, he immediately retracts them. And he says it was just a joke. Who the fuck? That's not a joke. It's not a joke. It's not even close to it. It's not, aside from like being tasteless or not, it's too specific. Yeah. And he told, if his friend knew him and thought he was a joker, he wouldn't have then called the police and been like, yo. Yeah. This guy confessed. That's a thing somebody says and the person listening to it goes, oh no, what I've always suspected about you is true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Investigators let him go as they cannot confirm anything he said, but this event renews interest in the case. And over the years, there have been little glimmers of hope that this case might be solved when skeletal remains are found in Adams, Massachusetts, which is just a 45-minute drive from Bennington. In 1968, people immediately speculate that Paula has finally been found. But when the bones are determined to be too old to be Paula's, the hope for a resolution in this case just continues to fade. Mm. I feel like they should retest them, though, because 1968, you know, we didn't know jack shit. Right. True. Good point. Locals continue to stay fascinated with Paula's case, hoping that someday it will finally be solved. But even though Paula is perhaps the most famous missing person case in the Bennington area, she's not the first or the last. And here's what I want to tell you about something called the Bennington Triangle. Paula Weldon's case is part of a string of phenomena in southern Vermont. Between 1945 and 1950, so many people go mysteriously missing in the area that it's coined their Bennington Triangle by local Vermont author and folklorist Joseph A. Citro. In 1945, an experienced hiker and hunter named Mitty Rivers, which is a great name, (laughs) disappears while part of a hunting party. He vanishes from the exact same area that Paula would go missing from a year later. Mitty is never found, and three years to the day after Paula goes missing, on December 1st, 1949, a man named James Tedford is riding a bus home to Bennington from another Vermont town, and then he just disappears as well. He's seen both boarding and riding on the bus, and his luggage is found above his empty seat on the bus. 
but somehow he just vanished during the journey. Isn't that wild? How? Yes. (laughs) I mean, did they all stop to eat or something or like gas break or anything? Maybe. Then he would have just like called, you know, home and been like, they left me behind. But he just is never seen again. He wouldn't call home though if somebody took him away against his will. Right, right. Yeah. What? Yeah. James is never found. In 1958, year-old Paul Jepson is waiting in his mother's truck while she steps out to feed some pigs. When she returns about an hour later, Paul is gone. Even though he's wearing a bright red jacket, which investigators think would have made him easy to spot, he's never found. Which is where it's Paul and Paula, and they're both wearing red jackets, right? Red jackets, mm-hmm. Yep. Lastly, just two weeks after Paul's disappearance in 1950, 53-year-old Frida Langer is hiking with her cousin when she slips and falls into a stream. She's uninjured but wet and decides to go back to the family's campsite to change clothes. And she tells her cousin, you know, go go ahead, I'm gonna go back, I'll catch up with you later. And when she doesn't, the cousin returns to the camp and discovers that Frida never made it back. So she's the only so-called victim of the Bennington trial whose remains are ever found. Her body is discovered eight months later in 1951, about three and a half miles away from her disappearance. And no cause of death is ever determined. Three and a half miles. That's too many. Because that means, did she? so she could have gotten lost on her way back. Definitely, yeah. Mm. Stay out of the forest, everyone. This is around the time I start getting mad because I know you're not going to tell me what, <laughs> like anything else that happens. It's this part, it's this part of this my story is that you want me to just fucking make something up and like <laughs> tell you whatever. Well, I'm sorry to say <laughs> no conclusive evidence ever ties these missing people together and the mystery of the Bennington Triangle persists. Some people wonder if there was a serial killer active in the area at the time who was never caught. Others believe the area to be haunted or cursed. And it's also obviously possible, though probably not incredibly likely, that at least some of these people wandered off to start new lives. Which happens, I guess. The disappearance of Paula Weldon and the surrounding mystery of the area have inspired a genre of literature, specifically women-identified authors writing about missing women. Mid-century horror writer Shirley Jackson, whose husband was a professor at Bennington College when Paula went missing, wrote a whole, and we know Shirley Jackson, she's fucking famous. The Lottery. That's right. Wrote a whole novel inspired by the disappearance called Hangs a Man. And this title's from an old folk band ballad. And supposedly, Paula's story is also part of the inspiration for Donna Tartt, who's one of my favorite authors, her 1992 classic, The Secret History, which is freaking Mm -hmm. incredible. Everyone should read it. It's a psychological thriller about a fictional version of Bennington College in which a student is murdered by her friends. And I had no idea about this, that that was the inspiration. inspiration, Yeah. Other books and short stories add to the fictionalized accounts of Paula cycling through possibilities that a professor murdered her or possibly her father or maybe another student, of course. Maybe she was running off to meet a secret lover, or maybe she was just going on a long walk to escape the pressures of her life and to prove she could go on an adventure alone. Paula's story serves as an easy template for authors to speculate about what it means to go missing, but Paula Weldon was a real person, not a character. Paula was 18 years old when she disappeared. She would be 94 years old today. Wow. And that is the puzzling and tragic story of Paula Jean Weldon and the Vermont State Police. Wow. 
I need more information about the gas station attendant who saw a woman in a red jacket running yes. in the gravel pit. Yeah. I mean, what is like... The parallel to me is the woman from that downtown hotel that climbed up to the water tower. Mm-hmm. If, and not to constantly mention mental illness or whatever, but if that is an element where there's a chemical imbalance. Right. And there's like, she needs to move, she needs to walk, she's whatever. Mm-hmm. Like maybe she had a break from reality. Like Elisa Lamb is who you're talking about. Maybe she had a break from reality. Right. Or that, that idea that she, but then also, okay, so that's just like one yeah. easy one, right? The, a parallel. But then there's also the thing of like, if her dad was the rich one and she felt like she wasn't loved by her family and mm-hmm. they had a bunch of money, then maybe this was the only way she thought she could get away is just kind of like right. disappear. Or she went to the trail, she was seen there, she went back, hitchhiked home, and the person who picked her up right, killed her. Yeah. Right, because she hitchhiked there. Yeah. Yep. Good point. Yeah. Because it sounds like when you said the thing of the old couple that was hiking behind her, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so this must have been an okay, mm-hmm. it must have, like the the conditions were not so threatening yeah. that it was just immediately like she died in, in the elements. Yeah. I mean, you just think about how many people you see throughout the day and like, would you remember any of them if someone or something like this person went missing? Like the amount of people who did probably see her and never realized that they did see a missing person came never came forward. So yeah. They could easily have she could easily have finished the hike and hitchhiked home. Maybe. Crazy. Yeah. We'll never know. We won't. We might. Are you happy now? We'll <laughs> never know. We might. That's the point. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. You're playing the long game with these cold cases, I see. <laughs> I am. In 20 years, when we're still doing this podcast, we'll have some answers. <laughs> When we're doing this podcast from Bennington College. Well, that was great. And also, I never heard of the Bennington Triangle. I mean, the I've never heard of that Vermont Triangle. Bennington Triangle, yeah. It is the Bennington mm-hmm. Triangle. I've never heard of that. Yeah, creepy. I'm always, always interested in those kinds of things where it's like... Mysterious, yeah. Orbs of light. Yeah. What are we talking? <laughs> See, discs in the sky. <laughs> people, Children with deep voices. Mm. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye.
Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code space 80. Goodbye. Hannah really nailed this combination of stories because I'm going to talk to you today about a thing. I think, Georgia, you personally know what I'm going to tell you about, but probably not the details Mm -hmm. because I knew of this person and the work that she did, but I didn't know really much else about her. Mm. So today I'm going to tell you about someone who devoted her life to reforming the way deaths are investigated in the United States. She is considered the mother of modern forensic science. Mm. It's Frances Glessner Lee, the creator of the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Deaths. Yes. Oh, I'm excited. Here is what's great about having a researcher. I've wanted to do this story (laughs) for so long, but every time I read an article, it was just kind of like, oh, she just made these things and helped the police. And it was like, it doesn't fit. It's not a full story. Yeah. Yeah. And then here goes Marin digging in. And I was just, as I was reading, I was like, how do I, why don't I know this? Why don't I know any of this? (laughs) Oh, I'm excited. I don't know any of it. Yeah. So yeah, it's very exciting. So the main sources for today's story are the book, 18 Tiny Deaths, The Untold Story of the Woman Who Invented Modern Forensics by Bruce Goldfarb, a 2020 episode of C-SPAN's American Artifacts series titled Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Deaths, and the website Death in Diorama. And then the rest of the sources are in our show notes. So we start in my favorite time, Mm. 1878. Oh, here we are. American Gilded Age. We're almost to the turn of the century, but we're a little, we're kind of far away. But it's the American Gilded Age, and Frances Glessner, also known as Fanny, is born into an incredibly wealthy Chicago family. In fact, the Glessners owned the International Harvester Company. They're the ones that make basically a ton of farming equipment and mm. construction equipment. So Frances grows up in an enormous stone mansion in Chicago, and she spends her summers in a big house in the New Hampshire countryside. She receives a thorough education from tutors, and before she's 20 years old, she is fluent in four languages and plays the violin. Damn. Yeah. 
So like most women of the time, she's also trained in the domestic arts. She's excellent at all types of needlework and she loves crafting and working with her hands. Mm -hmm. But as intelligent and crafty as Frances is at the turn of the century, heiresses to huge fortunes are not supposed to have ambitions beyond being a socialite and a homemaker. She's not supposed to need college or a career, but Frances is different. As a child, her interests include mummies and anatomical drawings. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You know. One of us, one of us. And then in 1887, when she's nine years old, she undergoes surgery for severe tonsillitis. She makes a full recovery, but now she has a new obsession, medicine. So as she grows older, she fantasizes about attending Harvard Medical School like her brother George. And for Frances, there's no other option. Harvard's her dream school, and it's the only one she wants to attend. But unfortunately, Harvard Medical School uh, won't be admitting female students until the mid-40s. So... Yeah, so her dream of Harvard is out of the picture. So Frances does what's expected. When she's 19 years old, she marries a lawyer named Blewett Lee, Hmm. who is a descendant of General Lee. He's also about 10 years her senior, and he comes from high society as well. And together they have three children. But Frances doesn't really settle into this lifestyle. She still has all this energy and ambition and drive, but there's no outlet for it. And she's described as sad and frustrated. Her son John would later say that, quote, his mother's dark moods were punctuated by flurries of activity. So Frances cycles through hobbies, searching for something to be excited about. She gets into crocheting, beekeeping, even candy making. And then she discovers dioramas. So at the time, miniatures are a very trendy hobby for wealthy women. Frances takes it and runs with it. In 1913, when she's 26, she completes her first diorama. And it's a perfect recreation. Actually, Alejandra, do you have this picture? It's in Marin's packet. Yeah, I'll grab that. Okay, cool. Because I think Georgia should see this. It's a perfect recreation of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And can you see it? Wow, that's beautiful. Right? The website Death and Diorama says, quote, the model included 90 musicians, their instruments, sheet music, stands, and accompanying instrument cases, along with other minute details. Frances actually even sits in on several rehearsals and sketches each individual member of the orchestra. So the model's (laughs) faces are true to life. Oh my God. It takes her three months to finish it. And when she's done, she gives it to her mother as a birthday present. Aw, that's incredible. When I first looked at the picture, it looks like you're looking at the Chicago Symphony. It's really mind-blowing. Totally. And it was made in 1913. And she had three children, which is the craziest thing. (laughs) But she had a ton of money, so she probably had six nannies. That's true. But who knows? I don't know know her life. Here's what I do know about her life. Her marriage is falling apart. When she's 35 years old, she divorces Blewett after what the New York Times describes as, quote, 16 unhappy years. The two never really see eye to eye, and her son John attributes his parents' divorce in part to his mother's, quote, creative urge coupled with high manual dexterity, the desire to make things, which his father did not share. So it's unclear what other issues existed in the marriage, but after their divorce, Frances destroys every single picture the couple has ever taken together. Which makes me think that maybe it wasn't just crafting that was the problem. Yeah. 
So not long after their divorce, Francis bumps into an old friend named George Burgess McGrath. George has been classmates with Francis's brother at Harvard, and he has known the Glessner family for years and kind of been around. Mm -hmm. And he actually went on to become Boston's second ever medical examiner, consulting on major death investigations of the day. Wow. His ability to get to the bottom of the most confusing death investigations earned George McGrath a reputation for scientific brilliance. He's even compared to Sherlock Holmes. Wow. She's like, that one, please. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So they meet up, like they Mm -hmm. both by chance are sick and in the hospital at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they both are fine and recover fine. But then it's like this bizarre circumstance that brings them together. Mm -hmm. And so... Frances, of course, is instantly fascinated by George's career, and she wants to hear all about it, and with good reason. One of the cases George consulted on was the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. (gasps) Oh my God, crossover. Right? So clearly he's fascinating. Yeah. And George seems to genuinely respect Frances's intellect, so the two become very close platonic friends. Mm. So George explains to Francis how he's earned the comparison to Sherlock Holmes, and it sounds very obvious today, but back then it was groundbreaking. He uses science. (laughs) So basically in the early part of the 20th century, criminal investigations in the U.S. were a mess. There were countless cases where crime scenes were trampled, evidence is mishandled, critical clues are lost or overlooked. I mean, we've talked many yeah. times about stories where the police walk onlookers through the crime scene, you know, mm-hmm. as they come by, or the fact that photographers used to go in with the detectives when they right. first walked into the room. So, very bad process. On top mm-hmm. of that, the coroner system dominates death investigations at the time. But this is an interesting fact. Coroners don't need any formal training. Yeah, that's wild. To get the job of coroner, you just have to win a local election. Yeah, that's fucked up. It's crazy. So George thinks this is totally backwards. Unlike most death investigators in the United States, George actually went overseas to receive additional pathology training. So now he envisions a country where science-backed medical examiners completely replace coroners and all law enforcement is highly educated and intentional with their work. Mm-hmm. He admits to Francis these big ideas seem like a pipe dream. But Francis refuses to accept that. She genuinely believes George's vision could be put into practice. In fact, she thinks it must be put into practice. Without having educated, highly trained investigators out in the world, that would mean that murderers would walk free, victims might never receive justice, and innocent people could go to jail for crimes they didn't commit. So Mm. for Frances, this is a cause she is ready to fight for, and she devotes the rest of her life to changing what she considers to be a flawed investigative system. In the 1930s, after the death of her brother, Frances inherits her entire family's fortune. Holy shit. So suddenly a woman who's been boxed out of society's, basically that any kind of dreams or ambitions she might have, Mm -hmm. suddenly has a large amount of financial power and personal agency, and she's ready to use it. So she starts by establishing forensics-focused coursework at a prestigious American university. Where better than the place that once shut her out because of her sex, Harvard Medical School. Mm -mm. 
For France, this is a very obvious starting point. While colleges in Europe offer advanced training in what's known as legal medicine, which blends science and law, nothing like that exists in the U.S. So in 1931, Frances calls up Harvard and makes a very attractive offer. She says she will make an enormous donation to the school if they start a department of legal medicine, a term for what we now call forensic science and pathology. Mm. Uh, She says she'll pay the salaries of the department chair, his secretary, and a librarian in perpetuity. And if that's not enough, she promises to leave more money to Harvard in her will. Wow. And she also makes a compelling argument for why it should exist. Francis says that Harvard's Department of Legal Medicine could be a factory for medical examiners. These Harvard-trained investigators would leave the school and rise to positions of power in communities across the country. And there, armed with their Harvard-backed education, they'd correct a broken system and improve the field of criminal justice. And it could be one more cultural and academic feather in the cap of this prestigious school. And so Harvard, of course, is on board. Over the next few years, with Francis's constant input, the school begins building a state-of-the-art legal medicine department. Wow. But as evangelical as Francis is about getting rid of the coroner system, she also wants broad reform. Francis says that, quote, legal medicine may be likened to a three-legged stool, the three legs being medicine, the law, and the police. If any one of these is weak, the stool will collapse. Hmm. So in the mid-30s, Francis begins touring the country and educating people on the merits of forensic sciences. She speaks at women's clubs with physicians in their offices, and she makes an appearance at the 1933-34 Chicago World's Fair. Oh, my God. Yeah. She even lands a meeting with J. Edgar Hoover, who famously didn't care much for women's opinions. In fact... (laughs) After he became, I think we've talked about this, after he Mm -hmm. became the head of the FBI, he fired every single female agent at the Bureau. Oh, what a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. But Francis clearly left an impression on him. An FBI official later writes in a memo that she, quote, impressed me as being most intelligent, alert, and aggressive, and I believe that she will apply herself to her plans very energetically. And that FBI staffer's not wrong, Frances stays very busy in the 30s. So along with all her efforts to promote forensic science and push out the coroner system, she also starts thinking about ways to roll out police officer training. And this is particularly important to Frances as officers are often the first people at crime scenes and what they do there can inform everything that happens next in the legal pipeline. This is so obvious now, and Mm -hmm. especially now looking back at all the ways things go wrong and all the stories we've told of exactly the the issues when it does go wrong. Right. So with this in mind, Francis spearheads the annual conference called Harvard Seminars in Homicide Investigation. They're later rebranded as Harvard Associates in Police Science Seminars. It's a week-long, invitation-only conference where dozens of police officers from around the country receive training on the latest forensic tactics and techniques. And they learn them straight from the experts in the field. So attendees observe autopsies. They learn how to interview witnesses and handle evidence. They get tips on securing crime scenes. And they hear lectures on how to best identify causes of death. And Frances organizes the entire curriculum herself. Holy shit. Yeah. Without even the education of it all. It's wild. With no education and basically with the help of her friend George, kind of mm-hmm. seeing and understanding this huge problem that has to get, like, she's like, this has to get solved. We have to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And 
like I was saying, like the first ever article I read about Francis Glessner Lee not only mentioned none of this stuff, like mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. They basically made it sound like she was a weird old lady yeah, with weird interests that was kind of like kooky. Yeah. Thinking back now, so reductive. Yeah. When you actually know what she did and what she like put real force behind. It's crazy. Totally. So irritating. Okay. So then... In 1938, the legal medicine department at Harvard is finally up and running. I mean, 1938, it's so long ago. So ahead of this milestone, Frances has a few stipulations for her friends at Harvard. She's in control of everything from picking the classrooms that she wants the department to be anchored in to saying that George Burgess McGrath should serve as the legal medicine chair. And they're fine giving her whatever she wants. Sadly, George McGrath passes away after a short illness that same year. He was oh. only 68 years old. Yeah. What a bummer. And although Frances is bereft, she's now even more determined to put their shared dreams into practice. So new chairperson is put at the helm. Frances continues to bankroll the department for years. She also supplies Harvard with a collection of books on things like poisons, criminology, toxicology. All of that gets put into what becomes known as the George Burgess McGrath Library of Legal Medicine. It's since been absorbed by Harvard's Countway Library of Medicine. By the early 1940s, Frances is in her 60s and living in New Hampshire full-time. But she's now widely considered an expert in criminology. She's so well-respected that the New Hampshire State Police often consult with her on complicated death investigations. Wow. So in 1943, in recognition of her invaluable assistance, Frances is made police captain of the New Hampshire State Police. And she's the first (laughs) woman in the history of the United States to earn this rank. Holy shit. Uh Uh-huh. And to be very clear, it's not an honorary title. Her biographer, Bruce Goldfarb, writes in 18 Tiny Deaths that Francis is handed, quote, general police power to enforce all criminal laws of the state and to serve criminal processes and make arrests in New Hampshire. Wow. Yeah, our stories totally overlap. That's so weird. Yeah, that is (laughs) super crazy. She never makes any arrests, but she does carry her captain's badge in her purse for the rest of her life. And she Hmm. does answer to the title Captain Lee, if people call her that. Love it. So as she's racking up accolades, she continues her tireless work. Her Harvard seminars become increasingly sought after by police officers across the country, but she's always looking for new ways to improve her curriculum. So in 1945, she ingeniously dips back into the domestic arts that she learned as a young aristocrat, and she creates her best-known legacy, the now-famous Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. Mm -hmm. So if you, listener, have never heard of these, they're most reductive. They're basically death-themed dollhouses. Mm -hmm. Each one is complete with tiny dolls and all the things you would find in anyone's house, furniture, clothing, cans of food, newspapers, wallpaper, cigarettes. And every single element in these dollhouses has been dreamt up and handcrafted by Frances herself. If any piece is any more involved than she just calls a carpenter. So she makes 19 of these case study dollhouses. Each one is different than the next. Some are a single room. 
like a bedroom, a bathroom, or a kitchen. Others are an entire house, cabin, or a barn. But what connects these nutshells is that they're all loosely inspired by a different mysterious death. So alongside all of the other details of everyday life, you can see tiny shotguns, knives, and sprays of blood spatter. Some of these cases are based on the stories morgue workers and police officers have told her, and others are inspired by the autopsies that Frances has observed herself. So by fabricating the nutshell studies of unexplained death, Frances creates an invaluable tool for police officers to study at her seminars. The dollhouses are analyzed for a fixed amount of time, and Frances is often in the room with her seminar attendees while they work, and she gives recommendations on what to look for and how. So she suggests they start at the outside of the room and spiral clockwise inward to the center, hmm. which is something investigators still do at crime scenes today. Oh, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. For each nutshell, Francis also has an accompanying report that gives additional context to each scene. Some writers have compared these nutshells to virtual reality, helping the officers at her seminars feel like they're observing a complex and confusing crime scene. And they also subvert any pre-existing idea of who deserves justice. Francis's politics are all over these dioramas. Most of her victims are marginalized in some way. They're not the elite members of society that she grew up around. The mm -hmm. nutshells show the deaths of housewives, of sex workers, of people struggling with alcoholism, even prisoners. According to Goldfarb, quote, these are people who don't usually have their lives documented in art. Francis felt like every death is important and every death deserves a thorough scientific investigation. It's easy to imagine Francis having to work against the first impression that her nutshells aren't serious or important work. At the time, dollhouses, dioramas, miniatures, they're all considered inherently female as a pastime. So Goldfarb says that Frances, quote, knew she was dealing with hard-boiled homicide detectives, so there couldn't be anything remotely doll-like about hmm. them. Oh my God. No girls allowed. God forbid. God forbid your masculinity. <laughs> yeah, it's and at a crime scene is, is challenged, yeah. Very fragile. That's where it's the most fragile, yeah. Yeah. But nutshell dioramas are incredibly important and valuable creations, not only for the advancement of forensic science, but literally, their literal cost. Luckily, Frances is rich because <laughs> these nutshells cost her between six and $8,000 each, <gasps> which is, do you want to take a guess of how okay. much that is in today's money? And what year is it? 1940s? I would say we're saying like, yeah, late 30s, early 40s. So 6,000, you said? Six to eight. Six to eight. Okay, I'm going to go with, it'll be in the 70s. 100 to $130,000 each. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. That's wild. And that costly craftsmanship and the intricacy and all that attention to detail are what make the nutshells so incredible. Frances packs each scene with tons of tiny items. Some are relevant to the death, many are not. So observers have to take everything they see in the scene into consideration before ultimately deciding if the death was an accident, a suicide, or a homicide. To get a sense of how tiny these elements can be, an Al Jazeera reporter named Nicole Johnson says that, quote, clues and details include a lipstick mark found under a pillow, a wall with a bullet, 
an overturned ashtray, ligature marks painted on dolls' necks, half-peeled potatoes near a sink, and old letters at the foot of a body. Wow, weird. It's like a real little world. (sighs) Oh my God. Every case does have a solution, but it's kept confidential. Francis fears that if they're ever publicized, the nutshells would no longer be useful to police trainees. Oh, interesting. Right? But the solution is not entirely the point. Francis made the nutshells to be intentionally ambiguous. They're not whodunits with clear conclusions. Participants can't refer to things like autopsies or police reports, and they can't question witnesses to get closer to the truth. The exercise is strictly about having an open mind, accepting that there are unknowns, avoiding hastily made conclusions, and above all else, the importance of being thorough and methodical at the scene of a death. So if you haven't seen them, look online because the pictures of them truly are mind-blowing how yeah. real they look and how the incredible detail. They're, it's yeah. amazing. So cool. But for right now, I'm going to describe one to you so that okay. we can have the satisfaction in the moment. Let's do it. This one is called Three-Room Dwelling. It's often said to be the most complex nutshell in Francis's collection. From the outside, it looks like a small house with a front and back porch. Inside, there are three rooms, a kitchen, a main bedroom, and then a nursery. And there are three victims, including a baby. Mm. So this is the report Francis created to accompany this nutshell. Okay. Quote, Robert Judson, a foreman in a shoe factory, his wife Kate Judson, and their baby Linda Mae Judson were discovered dead by Paul Abbott, a neighbor. Mr. Abbott was questioned and gave the following statement. Bob Judson and he drove to their work together alternating cars. This was Abbott's week to drive. On Monday morning, November 1st, he was late, about 7.35 a.m., so when blowing his horn didn't bring Judson out, Abbott went to the factory without him, believing Judson would come in his own car. Sarah Abbott, Paul Abbott's wife, was also questioned and gave the following statement. After Paul left, she watched for Bob to come out. Finally, around 8.15 a.m., seeing no signs of activity at the Judson house, she went over to their porch and tried the front door, but it was locked. She knocked and called, but got no answer. She then went to the kitchen porch, but that door was also locked. Looking in through the glass, she was then thoroughly aroused by the sight of a gun and blood. She ran home and notified the police. The model shows the premises just before Mrs. Abbott went to the house. So... Mm-hmm. That's what they get to read. And then mm-hmm. Francis's report also includes a couple more details. She notes the sun rose at 6, 17 a.m. that day. Mm. The weather was clear. All the lights were off in the house and both doors were locked from the inside. Yeah. Here's some of the information we get inside the nutshell. Bob and Kate Judson are dead in their bedroom. Their baby Linda May is in her crib in the adjoining nursery. There's a shotgun on the kitchen floor. Hmm. And that's the one that the neighbor saw through the window. Kate is lying on her side in bed. There's blood on her pillow. There's also blood that seems to have been sprayed on the wall beside her. On the opposite side of the bed, Bob is face down on the floor. He's on top of one of the bed's comforters. There's blood all over him, but it's mostly on the back of his pajama pant legs. There's Hmm. blood in the bed, especially where Bob's face would have been if he were sleeping in it. 
There are signs of disarray in the bedroom and nursery. One chair in the bedroom is toppled and a lamp has been knocked off Bob's nightstand. One chair in the nursery has been turned over and so have two decorative chairs sitting on top of the baby's dresser. There's a flashlight on Kate's nightstand. There are bloody tracks leading to the nursery and inside the nursery, there's a large pool of blood near the door that connects to the bedroom. The baby's in her crib and there's blood splatter on the wall above her head. There is a teeny tiny shotgun shell on the floor near the crib. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. The window in the baby's room is open. There are milk bottles outside the window on the back porch by the back door. Mm -hmm. But those milk bottles don't seem to be disturbed. So a curator named Nora Atkinson, who recently held an exhibit with Francis's nutshells, says, quote, I think people come here expecting that they're going to be able to look at these cases and solve them like some Agatha Christie novel. But when you look at them, you realize how complicated a real crime scene is. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm trying to like rack my brain for what happened. You know, like what, where, why, why is there a puddle of blood in the baby's room? Yeah. And did the husband get shot, but it only grazed him. So he got up and knocked over his light or what, you know, mm, yep. that kind of thing. Also, if both doors are locked, that means that the killer may have gone out of the baby's room window without mm-hmm. knocking the milk bottles over that were right under it. No, that, no, no, no. They were at the back door, I think. That it's, that's where the, ba- so it almost is like, like this. Oh. And the baby's window opens mm-hmm. up to the back porch. Okay. And it faces like the stairs that go down. Hmm. And to the right of that window is the wall with the back door. Okay. Got so it. it's a weird, it's, a, it's like a tiny little L shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. So, like the rest of Francis's nutshells, three room dwelling is incredibly complicated. Viewers must use things like the presence of weapons, position of dead bodies, blood sprays and splatter, and information from Francis's report and other clues around the rooms to come to their own conclusion. In his book, 18 Tiny Deaths, writer Bruce Goldfarb explains that Francis's nutshells eventually catch the attention of reporters. But in their coverage, they often, quote, cast Francis as a peripheral figure if she's mentioned at all. A wealthy matron who made morbid dollhouses and understated her role as a leader in the field. Wow. So basically, it's just like, oh, this old lady can't be doing, can't do anything except for like craft or what I mean, like so reductive. When I first saw her, I I got the impression that she had been like commissioned to make them. Not that she had like, like she was an old crafty lady and they were like, hey, we need these things. Will you do it for us? No, it was her fucking entire idea. Yes, completely. From the start to finish. Amazing. Those reporters are clearly oblivious to the fact that within the then tight-knit discipline of forensic science, Francis Glessner Lee was a bit of a rock star. Mm -hmm. The officers who attend the seminars, who are all men until 1949, not one woman until 1949, they reportedly view Francis as a mix of a mentor and a celebrity. And Francis's dear friend, Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote the Perry Mason books, describes an invitation to her seminars as, quote, as sought after in police circles as bids to Hollywood by girls who aspire to be actresses. 
Wow. So it's one of those, if you know, you know, situations. Mm -hmm. Frances Glessner Lee's impact on our criminal justice system is huge. And thanks to her seminars and educational resources, she's directly responsible for many of the best practices still used to process crime scenes today. Her fight to dismantle the coroner system also has clear results. Although, of course, there are still many coroners out there, according to Bruce Goldfarb, there are medical examiner systems in over 20 states and in Washington, D.C., and some jurisdictions that have a coroner model now require them to be trained in forensic science. Yeah, it seems like that's the way, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's pretty important. In 1962, Frances Glessner Lee dies in Bethlehem, New Hampshire at the age of 83. Just a few years later in 1966, Harvard's legal medicine department dissolves due to lack of funding. Mm. But a version of Frances's original Harvard training seminar still lives on to this day. It's now held at Baltimore's Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, and it's been renamed the Frances Glessner Lee Homicide Seminar. And Francis's nutshells are still a part of the curriculum. Sadly, one of them was irreparably damaged decades mm-hmm. ago, but the remaining 18 continue to encapsulate Francis's brilliance, talent, love of science, passion for justice, and a devotion to education, all in a nutshell. Frances Glessner Lee always had the final word at her seminars. Here's an excerpt from a speech she once gave to a room full of police officers. Quote, There is no place for guesswork in any sort of police work whatsoever, especially not in homicide investigation. The investigator seeks out the truth, the whole naked, incontrovertible truth. Let it finish where it may. He is not protecting or avenging anyone, but is seeking through patient, painstaking, accurate, hard work, what happened, never making a guess and then searching for evidence to support it. Patience, an infinite capacity for taking pains, absolute accuracy, and thoroughness, there is no substitute for these. If you cannot approach a case with these convictions, you should resign at once. There is no place for you in police work. Whoa. And fucking quote. And that is the story of Frances Glessner Lee, the creator of the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death, the first female police captain in the United States, and an all-around icon in the field of forensics. Oh my God. I want I want to applaud. But it's just one person, so it sounds it, sad. Just, just, <laughs> just, that sounds like just a nice light golf clap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just so mad. How dare <laughs> these fucking... Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's my bad Googling and then my bad listicle habits. But every time (laughs) I've seen this woman's picture, Mm -hmm. you know, looking down at her little dioramas, it's literally exactly what you said. Like, this lady helped the cops. And it's like, this lady taught the fucking cops. What are you talking about? (sighs) Got to be at one of her seminars. I mean, we wouldn't have been allowed because we're women, but still. That's right. (laughs) Well, in 1950... That's true. <laughs> to wait till 1950. That's true. Oh, that's so crazy. I know that they did a like one a museum, maybe it was in Baltimore, did a um, show a few years back and they showed all her dioramas. If they ever do that again, we have to go. Oh my God, we absolutely have to. Because there, yeah. there were some pictures in Marin's research of mm-hmm. people looking. So I think it was from that show yeah. of them and people looking down into them and talk about like the probably one of the most slow moving exhibits of all. I would never <laughs> right. move away from whatever one I was looking at. 
Well, you just did a cold case because now I want to know what happened to the, the family. That's right. So thanks a lot for that. Now I know how it feels. Now you know how it feels. Sucks. <laughs> Great job. Thank Great you. job. Thank she you. Deserved, you too. She deserved all that respect. She deserves it. Yeah. Well, we did it again. We did it. We did it. We're doing it. We're going to do it in the future. We've done it in the past. It's who we are now. Yeah. It's who we are. It's what we do. We're glad you support and or at least listen to us. Yeah. Thank you for being, you know, part of this little journey, <laughs> this season of our lives that we're on. <laughs> Thanks for living and loving and laughing along with us. Mm, amazingly. Yeah. And all the necklaces. Mm -hmm. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. Our senior producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. This episode was engineered and mixed by Stephen Ray Morris. Our researchers are Marin McClashen and Sarah Blair Jenkins. Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. Goodbye. Follow My Favorite Murder on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase My Favorite Murder merch.